You know we're in a series about idols. After having gone through troubling images of God in the Old Testament and looking at how carefully God admonished people and did extraordinary things to prevent them from falling into idolatry, we ourselves are victims of idolatry in our own culture, and we've been looking at this series on what it is that we worship. Tonight, our subject is going to be love, romance, and maybe a little bit of sensuality and sexuality are the things that really draw us into worship. Over the last two weeks, I've defined idolatry. I'm going to just narrow it down. Last week, as you know, we looked at the subject of idolatry of money and possessions, and there were a lot of good questions. The format I'm using is I'm giving us a little bit of background of maybe the subject matter. Then we're going to be looking at some verses, and then we're going to ask some questions of one another to help us identify whether this is an area where we struggle. And this really is kind of meant to be a personal series. You'll see that I wrote, we all struggle with idols that distract us from wholehearted single-mindedness towards God. Our devotion is distracted from him. And I also wrote, I want this to be personal. I want you to be asking, which idols distract me from my devotion to God? I don't expect every one of them is going to hit you. In fact, if it did, you'd probably have more issues that we'd need to talk about afterwards, right? Uh, I'm not trying to heap on a five-week series of five things that you've got to worry about. Uh, but I'm just asking the question for you to examine your heart. I've already identified some idols in my life that I didn't think were there uh, just by reading this material. So we've defined an idol as anything that's more important to you than God, that absorbs your heart and imagination, and that gives you something that really God should be giving you. Tonight, we're going to be focusing probably a lot down there on those two that talk about what is it that absorbs your heart and imagination? What is it that gives you something that God should be giving you? So I'm not going to get too theoretical. Let's just start right here. Are romantic relationships an idol in your life? Before you answer, let's talk a little bit about some verses and let me make some points and then we'll start to ask questions. But that's what you're going to be thinking about tonight and I hope you talk back to me. So here's the starting point I want to give you. This subject is a little bit different than the way I started last week. Last week I told you, money is not neutral. Money is actually a snare for most of us. But I want to start in a different place because when we talk about love and relationships, especially romantic relationships, and even the idea of finding a significant other, there's a little bit different starting point for us. And the first reason is because our desire to love others and our desire to find love for ourselves, it's hardwired into you. It's the way you were created. So we have to start by acknowledging that this is an intensely good thing, that God created this good thing in it. We just have to be careful because this series, we've said that idols are good things that we make into ultimate things. So being created in the image of God means, at least in part, what the definition of being created in the image of God means that we are created for relationship. But as I point out, like many things after the fall, things that are tainted by sin, we take even what was supposed to be a great creation, a great part of our identity, a great part of our image, and it gets twisted. We begin to worship created things rather than the creator. And I want to point out to you that sometimes those created things are other people. We actually worship other people instead of the creator himself. So we have a fine line we've got to walk. Somewhere between knowing that we were wired this way and our tendency to be wired all the way that direction, to reorient that wiring so that we're focused entirely on the relationship and the love. Have you ever been there personally? You ever been in a place where the person, the relationship, whether it was romantic or otherwise, started to consume who you were? started to be the object of your desire and devotion. I, I've seen it in my own life. I even uttered these words. I still remember them to this day because I uttered them so often. I was in a relationship that lasted four years that took almost everything of me in a good way at first. But I remember I would utter to myself, I would trade heaven and earth for this relationship. I would actually say that out loud. That's how intensely I felt about this person. Were they an idol in my life? <laughs> Absolutely. If you could say those words where I would trade heaven and earth for this person and for this relationship, for this moment that we have right here to just last, 
That this is heaven itself is being in this relationship with this person. Yeah, that's absolutely where it's probably been, uh, it's gone a little far at that point. What hindsight gives you that you don't have when you're there? Let's go back to Genesis chapter 2. You've seen this verse often because we've come back to it often in a recent series, but let me just remind you this point I made about being created in part as image bearers. Well, not in part. We're holy image bearers, but in part what that means is that we are created for relationships. So we see in Genesis 2 that God was looking for us not to be alone. And it's for that reason that he creates man and woman. And we have this verse at the bottom of the screen that says, and this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. It's okay. It just depends on how far we take it. God in his nature is triune. God in his nature is in relationship with God's self. That's the God who created us, who hardwired us for relationship. God is in relationship with God's self, so we can see that in that same way, he created us to be the same way. I'm going to take a chance up here and put up a symbol of the Trinity that we've seen before and add to it Maybe the way that relationships are supposed to work with us is like this. That we also should be in relationship with one another, but also with the triune God as the third party in our relationship. And many authors, when they look at how relationships are healthy, will say, just like God is in relationship, Father, Son, and Spirit, we too should be in relationship Ultimately, man, woman, and God in the center and very much part of our own, with a small t, triune relationship. Most of us, though, can't do that. We end up forgetting all of this and finding relationship with one another. So, let's press forward. Why did I cite that in our fallenness, relationships get tainted? Listen to what it says in Romans 1. This is coming out of talking about sinfulness, being able to see God's invisible qualities in the world, yet we still traded all of that for idolatry. Here's what Paul says in Romans 1, starting verse 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. He's talking about idols. Therefore, God gave them over their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural sexual relations with the women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. We took... All that was created. Instead of worshiping the creator, we worship created things. Whether that's things that look like animals and reptiles or whether it's actually people. That we created these relationships and we elevated them. This is also an area where idolatry is present in our whole society. We can see that the fallen nature of what was supposed to be a good relationship permeates all of our society. Let me just give you a couple of examples of where we see it. These are just a couple. I don't think I need to convince you, by the way, that our society idolizes sexuality and love. I think we all kind of get that point. But let me just point out a couple just to bring us up to speed. How much Christian literature is there on singleness and finding a mate? There is so much literature on this because it has a market. Why does it have a market? Uh, because we are... I would say, preoccupied would be the best way I could say it, with this subject, with finding fulfillment in these relationships. 
And there seems to be a whole market for it. Not saying it's bad, I'm just saying this points to a lot of things. Here are some things that might be bad. How about turning men, women, and sexual imagery into objects? How much do we objectify that in society? I don't need to convince you again. You're all very intelligent people. You see it. You've heard this speech a hundred times. But just the fact that it happens. Why? Because we take created things and we're elevating them and we're trading them in for the fallen views that we have inherited. How about the prevalence, use, and acceptance of pornography? The most recent numbers say that the highest percentage of growth in the church for pornography is among women. I would add probably because it can't go any higher for men. So there's got to be some growth area. It's going to be in women. But it's growing in our society. When I talk about the prevalence of it, I mean that, you know, I didn't think I'd live in an age where you could just turn on the internet and for free download anything you wanted at any time you wanted. And it was all available and protected by our laws. How about the difficulty of couples and married people to develop deep relationships with others? Maybe you don't identify that one first as a symbol of what might lead to, is that something that might trouble us about idolatry? Think about that for a second. Many couples, when they get together, lose a lot of their friends. Why? Because they really are building the relationship almost entirely at that moment, and almost everything else starts to fall away. This morning I was sitting in church when our pastor was trying to convince us that we needed to make relationships at church. And that sounds a little goofy that you need to convince people that they need to make relationships at church. Aren't we the body of Christ? Aren't we supposed to be like, we have the most amazing thing in common that binds us, and yet we're trying to tell people like, it would be good for you to meet people outside of your immediate relationships. Why? Because we've built them up to resolve and give us everything that we would have to convince one another that somehow community is a good thing. We keep saying it, but to actually convince people to do it. In all my years of doing young adult ministry, I've noticed this thing over and over, like people will get together and they disappear for a while, right? But if they break up, they're always coming back, right? What happened? They put so much emphasis in that relationship to provide them with so much, and when it was gone, they felt the absence. They elevated that to a place where it started to replace the needs that God should give, that the community should give. So you might look at this and think, mm, that seems kind of harm harmless like compared to pornography. Like, what's big deal about that? It's another pointer to the way that we idolize relationships. Last one. This is an interesting one that I've seen in a number of books. The fact that married people report a decrease in sexual activity in marriage. Now, first of all, think about that. A lot of Christians report that when they get married, they have a decrease in sexual activity. Uh, the only reason that's true, first of all, or could be true, it's because 80% of Christians are having sex before marriage. But the interesting thing about it is when you have marriage, a lot of times sexual activity decreases if you're sexually active before. And most people point to the fact that that's because we stop looking at them as an object of lust and desire. And our sexuality is so tainted that we have a hard time even dealing with our own spouse in a way that is the way we were designed to love, as opposed to the tainted way that our society gives us. So you read these blog postings, you read books, people addressing this fact that you need to relearn your sexuality in a healthy way. You need to ignore the sexuality that's been beamed at you through television shows, through movies, through pornography. You need to learn it the way it was intended, and people are struggling because they can't even have relationships with their spouse in the way because it's, we've been tainted by it in our society so much. We're suffering the impact of it. So we live in a place where this is a societal idol. It's not just one that is all on your own. What's the ideal? I'm going to go to 1 Corinthians 13, which we're often accustomed to hearing only at weddings. But listen to these words for a moment. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Tonight, what I want to hear from you about tonight is these two. 
It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. The reason I chose those is because these seem to be indicators of the condition of our heart more than any other as to whether we can make love, romance, even sexuality into an idol. Let me start with self-seeking. I'm going to put up a statement on the screen. It's a cliche. I'm going to tell you right now it's a cliche. It's a bumper sticker slogan. So only so much truth can be contained in it, but I want you to tell me what you think of it. Men trade love for sex, and women trade sex for love. What do you think of that statement? Yes, Megan. Sex is just sex. You know, you're either like having sex or you're not. Like it's, you know, it's very, it's very black and white. Whereas love, if love can be traded, traded for or bartered for, then that's not love. You know, sex, yeah, you could exchange in that way, but love, I have a hard time feeling like it can just be plugged in as a variable because it's so much more like a, a state and a commitment. Abby? I mean, I would say like a person trades an act of love for sex and would, or another person trades like sex for like an act of. Like if you included that, then I feel like that would be like more mutual uh, because that quantifies love, I guess, better. But I agree with Megan in the sense that like you can't, like love is, like love encompasses sex in a lot of ways for a lot of people. And so like to split those apart, yeah, it, it doesn't make sense. Okay, right? Kind of to agree with Randy, I don't like this because I think it sets up just perpetuating, you know, the stereotype that does exist in this country and not that it's without truth, but I they don't think that it should be this way. The idea that like a man is supposed to be preoccupied with sex is almost like a given in this culture and that women will love Twilight and go after that kind of like romantic girl porn stuff. And like, I think it's a lot more complicated than that, and I don't like that that is the stereotype, and I think that it should be different, and I just don't like this at all. Okay, did you call Twilight girl porn or goth porn? Girl porn. <laughs> Either one, right? Yeah, good. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think the truth in it, and I've had conversations, especially years ago with you know, high school buddies or different things like that, there, I think it highlights the idea that many people are looking to serve themselves. So whether you buy the stereotype or whether you could flip men and women, either is fine, but the reality is there are certain people like, okay, I know if I do this, 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 and this, I'll get what I want. And the other person's thinking the exact same thing if I do this. And so the categories may be different, the end results may be different. Either way, it's this idea of like, if I do such, 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 I will get something back. And, and that's the self I, I think there's a lot of truth in that. It's a cynical statement, isn't it? Look at it carefully. It's an observation, but it's meant to be kind of like a little bit of a zing in it somewhere because there's something about it that's trying to observe that, yes, men will trade one thing to get another. So it might perpetuate that stereotype that Ray was talking about. Uh, but the fact that you would trade to get what you want either way is cynical to look at men that way. It's also cynical to look at women that way. It also perpetuates that stereotype. The women don't like sex. They'll just do that to get love because that'll somehow satisfy them what they need. So I'm going to get what I need and you're going to get what you need. So we are just in a mercantile system here, just trading. There's a lot of cynicism in it. But the reason I point it out is because I think that this is falling under self-seeking. Many of us, while we could identify some cynicism in this statement, need to also pay very close attention to our condition of our own heart when we ourselves are self-serving in the way we approach any relationship or love. By the way, I might tweak it just a little bit. Because I think that both, in this case, men and women, are often searching for intimacy in a way. Not that that's any better. Because intimacy is oftentimes also trying to find misplaced, except in the bounds of marriage, misplaced security, comfort, and needs met outside of the devotion that we're supposed to have for God. So you could read it as oftentimes men will trade love for intimacy in the form of sex. And women will trade sex to get love, which is a form of intimacy. Nancy Ortberg says this, she says, never before in our culture has love held out such mythic 
promises of fulfillment. Listen to that. Love is the thing that is going to fulfill you. How many ads do we watch that has that message in it? How many shows, how many movies, how many songs do we hear repeatedly? She says, never in our culture has love held out such mythic promises of fulfillment. Love is elevated to this ultimate thing, and we get the message over and over again that our lives are simply empty and meaningless without it. And life really begins when we find that special someone. So what makes it an idol is when we turn the thing that we're supposed to receive from God and return to God, and we find it in created things, even other people, as opposed to the creator. Yes, Heather. I think though that the romanticizing of love and like our culture being so predominantly focused on finding that special person has kind of affected the way we view love of God, that we feel like it has to have those same kind of tingly feelings and you know that kind of thing. And so when our relationship with God doesn't have that, we think, oh well, either I must not be loving Him or I'm unworthy of His love or there's something wrong there because I'm not feeling that that love. I think it goes both ways. There's a little bit of a chicken and egg thing here. There are lots of people that I read who believe that falling out of love with God is what elevated the love of people and the love of you know, things even to such heights. Like our idolatry grows when we love God less. So there's a, I don't know which comes first. Or is it that we love God less because we started to love all these other things and all these other people more? That one you could spend a lot of time going back and forth on, but you can see where the problem lies. And yes, I agree with you. It does infect the way we expect love for God to be done. So that in this room, we've honestly confessed with one another that a lot of us do not understand love for God or how to... We, maybe we, we would say we don't feel it. But maybe the idea of feeling love for God is so tainted by the way we feel love for one another that we would think, well, maybe that wouldn't happen in that way. There are plenty of books that are trying. How many of you have seen a book about dating Jesus, for example, which I feel like the pendulum swings all the way the other way? Um, you know, rarely in my research that I do, do I feel nauseous. <laughs> uh, but I was reading about dating Jesus, and I actually really felt weird. But they were asking, how is it that we date Jesus? Here are some practical suggestions. Read his love letter daily. Of course, that's the Bible. So that's okay. You can do that. Write letters to Jesus. Express your love for him, it says. Make future plans with him. Write just like you would to a most intimate lover. Maybe you're right, Heather. Maybe that's where we... Are, we're confusing the very idolatry we love and trying to project it back on the God who loves us and somehow it gets mangled. Record his answers, by the way. You can do prayer journals. It goes on to explain some things. Walk and talk with Jesus. Set real dates, it says. Set some real dates. She writes, this usually occurs in nature for me. I'll go to a river, a park, a garden, or in the mountains with my Bible and worship music and hang out with him for an hour or two in beautiful seclusion. This next sentence kind of got me. At this point, he usually starts showing off for me. And that's where I thought, I think we've totally confused the message. That we think that sitting in seclusion with God and nature is Jesus showing off like a boyfriend captivating me with his majesty, pointing out the amazing things he formed with his bare hands for me. I believe in some of that. But I believe that, like you pointed out, occasionally we've got the whole thing confused. Maybe that starts because we have a fallen view of even the way we're supposed to, how we're supposed to have love for one another is fallen. Morgan. I have one question that kind of comes up only because, yeah, I'm not really trying to defend her. Some of those things are a little bit nutty. Um, but at the same time, you do have that relationship in Scripture of a groom and a spouse, right? Groom and bride. So, I mean, I, I do wonder uh, what that is meant to convey. You know, I mean, I wonder how to do that without, because, yeah, some of those hit me the same way they seem to hit you and most people are here. Um, 
and yet there, there's something meant by that metaphor too. So I'm just wondering. You know, they pick up on the same thing, so let's be fair. One of the lines in this was, the Bible tells us that when we get to our heavenly kingdom, we, his followers, will walk in holy matrimony as his bride. I think that's right. The problem is the image of the bride given in scripture is of the entire church. It is a metaphor. It's not intended literally like we're going to go marry Jesus. And even if we could not even comprehend the intimacy that we are going to have, I still think it relates to us as a group rather than having that relationship, um, I would say, be sensualized individually, right? I think that's where it's gone off the rails a little bit. Heather? Yeah, I was going to say, like, I can even see, like, within that, that you are a part of the body, so you are part of the bride of Christ. But I think it's the sensuality that gets strange and weird and a little bit more like ball kind of culture where they mix sex and religion because like then you get people interpreting song songs as not about human love but about God's love with us and you get these weird images of like when they talk about breasts they're not really breasts they're talking about this in the church of God and how we can relate to that and that's totally not true like that was a love letter from Solomon to one of his wives talking about sex and so I think like that's where it does get really weird <laughs> Yeah, there's another one that I won't even go into because they describe this whole thing they do with Jesus on Friday nights. And I just, I, I, it really just made me feel so uncomfortable. And it isn't because I'm a man where I'm thinking, that's ridiculous. I was just, just almost kind of thought it bordered on blasphemy for a moment. Yes. Um, if I start treating like, my significant other, saying whatever, like God, like, won't they become? And I don't, like, if I approach it, from that perspective, period. Right, so let's put the two poles up. Some of us in here will have trouble making relationships into idols. Some of us, where the pendulum swings the other way, where we're starting to romanticize or sensualize our relationship with God, trying to somehow feel our way into loving him back. Uh, and I would say it because we probably don't know how else to feel it, we would buy into this. You feel guilty. I don't feel love for God. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And somebody goes, go on a date with Jesus this Friday night and you'll feel it. And you think, well, nothing else worked. I'll try that. I think we need to pull back off that edge too, right? I just, yeah, I find this whole thing, like, I think it, scripturally there's a lot more evidence for treating Jesus, for thinking of Jesus as a friend, which is... King? King and creator. Like, I think there's a lot more intimacy to be found with God and thinking, like, he formed you to be in relationship with him in this like constant cosmic divine relationship that's so much more than like because a relationship with a boyfriend that's someone who's at your same level but a relationship with the creator is someone who made you like it's much closer to like a parent but even a parent can't get close enough to like someone who knows everything about you everything about you and understands every part of how you work, but it's supposed to be so much more intimate than a relationship with a significant other ever could be. Because that person can never know you the way that God knows you. And if you're in a relationship where you're expecting that, I think that causes a lot of tension between husbands and wives when it's like, well, why can't you be my everything? Well, they're not supposed to be your everything. God is supposed to be your everything, and the other person can come in into that triad, but you can't expect them to understand you the way God does. And I think that that expectation causes a lot of problems in relationships. Stephen, do you have a comment? Uh, it, I mean, I think maybe it's just because I'm a man, and so I and I kind of visualize God as like you know, although not maybe not gender specific, it's you know He, and so it's like for me, it would be weird to think that I'm in like a romantic relationship with God, but I think of it more as like my love for God would be more directed as like a father who created me, you know, just like you know an earthly father would would have created me, um, but in the same way, it's like. I love God as someone who I know is going to protect me um, and then also in the same sense give me wisdom and guidance and say, hey, you know what, and these are my rules for you, you know, as you grow up, these are the rules I have, I, you know, I want you to follow them. Um, I, would, I would say that, that love isn't just romantic love, it's, it's something that's, you know, just a, a deep desire for intimacy, you know. And the weird, I think the weird thing about the whole going on a date with God is like, well, he's on dates with everyone else too, so it's just kind of weird to think of it that way. <laughs> Ew.
all right, let's back off the dating Jesus thing, come back to looking at the idols in our own life. So that, that was a good thing to look into as an overcorrection. Now let's come back to deal with what most of us are actually dealing with. Ask yourself a couple questions with me. React to them if you want. You can still talk. Do you crave romantic relationships to address a deep sense of loneliness? Is there something in your mind, in your heart, where you think the answer in part to the condition of your life or to something that's going on is, if I could just find some romantic relationship, I would be done with this loneliness that I have? Maybe I could say it another way, that my salvation would be found in another. They would save me from this place that I am, this despair that I'm in. If only I could find the right person. If only the right person could find me. Is that a temptation for us to put so much in another relationship? By the way, I should make the same disclaimer I did last week. None of these by themselves means, ah, idolater in our midst, stone them. But every one of them, when they tug at your heart, should cause you to question and spend time asking deeper questions. Do you find your security bolstered by the romantic love of another? And unduly, and I mean unduly, impacted by the loss or absence of that kind of relationship? In plain English, does your insecurity disappear when someone else expresses love towards you in a romantic way? Or even when friends come around you and you find relationships in non-romantic ways, is that what addresses insecurity? Is that where you go to find security? And when I say, is it unduly impacted? Because, you know, all loss, all breakup is going to impact us. I'm not trying to say, like, it should just be, you know, hey, that was fun. See you. See you next time. Um, but, I mean, does it somehow set you off in a way that lasts, maybe in length of time, for years? Or until the next relationship comes along, you can't find anything to fill the hole that's been created? Uh, isn't that an indication that we're filling the things in our heart with people, with relationships, instead of the focus of our hearts? Yes? Um, first, I identify strongly with that one. Uh, you know, if I feel accepted by a lot of people, and I, and I feel like people want to be around me, or want me to be around them, they I feel awesome. And if I've been experiencing a lack of that for a while, I start to see, like, nobody likes me, like, I'm so alone. Um, but I wonder, I mean, there was something, too, it's not good for men to be alone, you know? And so there is a sense where you do need community. And so how do you discern that line between I just need to be around people? Because, I mean, I've had those, those dark nights when I'm praying, like, God, I just feel like it's so much hug me but you won't. I feel like I need somebody to, you know, I need to hear somebody's voice, but you won't. And so, and I don't, I don't think it's appropriate, like, with the other one, that God should fill those human goals. Um, and so, but I had, sometimes I draw the line of how much should I desire other people to be around? How much should I desire to be needed and wanted by others before it's idolatry? My response, and I, I hope everyone hears where this is coming from, I do believe that relationships and talking about relationships and romance as an idol is different than almost any other idol because of what you just said. Let's go back to the very beginning again. God could have said, it is good for man to be alone. I'm going to create man and let's have a, a woman, right? We're going to have women too and we're going to create them in equality, but we're going to have them get together for reproductive purposes only like most of the rest of the animal kingdom in some way. And I know I'm generalizing across all of the animal kingdom. I'm saying, yes, they'll reproduce, but I alone am going to meet their needs. I alone will be the one that they love and who will love them. And everything will come from them. And you pointed out that that is exactly what God chose not to do. That in a way, the special case that's created between a man and a woman in marriage, in this one flesh unity that he creates in the ideal, of course, it falls away very quickly as we see in the Old Testament, but the ideal is originally stated is that's the way I want it to be. That expresses his intent for the fact that this hardwired relationship need in us is something that we always have to ask at least, is that a healthy way of expressing it or have I shifted over and is it becoming too important where it's displacing God? 
So if you're back to that, I like the word that Ray used, like that triad of man, woman, and God, if at some point it's displacing God, and even in a situation where you're not in that relationship, you're just on your own, are you displacing God's place in your life as a single person by putting such an emphasis on the relationship that you think will fulfill you that God somehow has lost his place in your life, lost his primary place in your life, lost, as some people would say, his like, place that only God can take. And if that happens, then I would say we're sliding into it. But it is not like other things where I can go, hey, if you love that, you know, that we're supposed to love. We're created for this relationship. Cheers. Um, I was going to say, I think that this is a realistication because I think especially in Christian communities, we have this idea of once we start to analyze this, and, oh my gosh, God, do I love this person too much? And then we fall into this whole just domino effect of guilt tripping ourselves and we can rob a lot of the joy and purpose and like good things that God has put in relationships in our life. And I've just seen this a lot, especially in Christian circles, because we get to, I'm supposed to love God first. Oh my gosh, do I love my friends too much? Oh my gosh, do I want to spend time with them too much? And just this becomes really self-defeating and overspeaks the other way, too. What you're highlighting, I think, is guilt. Is that right? Uh, because we heap a lot of that on ourselves. Uh, unfortunately, the way that we teach about love and sexuality in the church is mostly guilt-based. And because of that, what we've learned is a couple of things. Uh, guilt is a horrible motivator for God's people. Like, and the way you know that is because people study the behavior of people in the church. And when you address them with guilt, their behavior changes almost none. But it does ruin a lot of the joy, like you said, that they have. Uh, one study that has recently been conducted shows that people who leave religion and ditch the guilt enjoy sex much more. Uh, we're not doing people a favor if the way that we teach about love and sexuality guilts them and, and defeats them from enjoying what God created. Like, if we're closer to God's ideal than the rest of the world, we should be actually enjoying love and sex in a greater way. And I know a lot of books promise that, but if you look around the church, probably nobody believes that. And I know it begins very early and very young, as people start to stress out over whether they love someone too much. However, I would say that even though I agree with all of those things you said and added those things, that should never operate to blind us from the fact that there are relationships that do start to become idols. Most of the time they're dealing with needs that are in us, that come from the fallenness that is in us. Uh, this one hits me too. I spent years trying to replace that relationship in my life and went through empty relationships, broken relationships, sinful relationships, no relationships, like a man in a desert just searching for water, and all I wanted to do was drink. Uh, and that became ultimately so much the focus of my life that it took radical things for God to bring me back and set me straight. Ray? Yeah, I definitely struggle with the second half. Is unduly impacted by the loss or absence of that kind of relationship. Like, I don't really know how to begin to address that. Patrick and I have been together almost five years at this point, and that's not going to, like, the loss or absence of that relationship, if it happens, is only going to get worse over time. Like, the longer we've been together, the harder it's going to be if for some reason he's no longer in my life. So how do you, like, begin to address that second half while without, like, ending the relationship? Yeah, and let me be very clear. I'm talking about unduly impacting your security, right? Because if you had been in a relationship for five years or ten years or 40 years, like some people are, and they lose that person, I'm not saying you shouldn't grieve. I'm not saying there shouldn't be loss or sorrow. What I'm saying is, if that by itself, and I use the word unduly, maybe I should think of even a better word, like if it just totally decimates your security, in other words, then there is an issue because hopefully you didn't find your security in that person and hopefully they're not the reason that you take it away because that tends to, sh that tends to be an indicator that this relationship is probably going outside the bounds of where it should be safe in the realm of idolatry. Yeah, struggle with it if you want. That's fine. You know, I mean, again, everything that we've been granted in life, we should be holding with open hands to the Lord, right? Everything. That includes even the relationships that we, we cherish, even the familiar relationships. I mean, we've talked about this before. I confessed in the first week, like, even the relationship with my daughter, like, I'm trying if possible. It's very hard, but that is the ideal that we're supposed to be striving towards to not idolize anything, including a relationship with something you love as much as your own flesh and blood like your daughter, Morgan. And I 
I really do hear the absence and the grieving that would happen, but I think part of the truth, and maybe we'll go over this when we get to how do you replace these or redirect them, is we have to know, I mean, it's a 50-50 shot that you're going to lose Kathy, but you're going to go before him or he's going to go I before you, right? I mean, somebody's going to lose someone. I mean, it, so, I mean, part of that is hopefully we actually face that truth and can recognize and internalize the gospel where Jesus is literally the only person we won't lose. That's the only, I mean, <laughs> that we can know in this world we won't lose. Um, so that truth can hopefully begin to actually help us to imagine, okay, what would it be like to lose this person? And I have no doubt that you can't actually know until these things happen. I'm not trying to overturn any of those things. I'm just trying to say there has to be some bottom line of, like, we actually face the reality that I'll either go or they'll go. And uh, somebody's losing something. Okay. Let me pre. Oh, Ben. I was just going to add on to that. I think one of the things that I've been trying you know, to go back to your alternate trinity symbol. Um, like, one of the things I think about in my own life is if I were to lose 15, would I lose two parts of that trinity or would I just lose one? And I think that kind of changes the way I think about it. And that, for me, is very much the conversation that Lena and I have because we know the difficulty of losing a child, and I pray it never happens. I pray I die first and I never have to see that. But we always have that conversation like, we cannot throw God out. We have to affirm his goodness, we have to affirm who he's there, we have to do all those things now as a protective measure and also as a right standing before God. Like no matter how much we love this girl, and no matter how much she means in our life, she cannot mean so much that she would wipe out our relationship with you, God, if anything were to happen for us to question you or to say you're not there or to turn our backs on you, it's going to hurt like crazy, but we have to at least affirm that you're God and hang on to that. And otherwise, we're losing everything over that. That's exactly the kind of devastating blow where you've not only lost your daughter or your family or your husband or your wife or whatever it is, but you've lost your relationship with God, and that should give an indication of where you were standing to begin with. Difficult conversations. Look at this. Do you spend time hoping or imagining a greater sense of fulfillment in your life that might come from being in a relationship. Here's the other thing that I put up from that 1 Corinthians 13 passage, anger. This is also a good indicator because when we lose things that really mean a lot to us or that we cling to, sometimes the resulting thing is anger. So just some questions to ask. Are you angry towards God for unmet relational needs? I don't think you should run through that too fast because sometimes we don't even identify anger when we're angry towards God. It could just be the shutdown of a relationship with him. It could be just the lack of words to say anything. Are you angry at others because of unmet relational needs? Do you actually blame other people because they're not meeting your needs? Are you just angry in general to the point that you're repelling people because you're so frustrated in your anger about what you think is going to solve the problem? Wouldn't that identify how deeply you hold this? Regardless of your intent, does your anger have the effect of increasing the amount you're cut off from God and others? Is your anger increasing? Have you had ongoing difficulty in getting over broken relationships and forgiving the other person? Is the loss of a relationship or the loss of someone so deep that you can't forgive them or forgive others? Is it difficult even when love is spurned or not even there? Have you had such difficulty in relationships that you've sworn them off entirely? This is kind of the, like the people who respond to the idea of, I don't have a problem with money, I don't even have any. Which really underlines the fact that, no, you've got a big problem with money, you just don't know what it is yet. Same thing with relationships. Some people are like, hey, I don't have any problems with relationships, man. I'm not having any. That's not for me. I'm staying away from all of them. <laughs> that would indicate probably a big problem with relationships and the place that they occupy in your life. Abby? I have like a friend, and um, her, like, her mom passed away like a year and a half ago, something like that. And then like, right after her mom passed away, she got into a really serious relationship. Um, and a couple months ago, the relationship like ended, and she's not a believer. Um, and it has like literally sent her into the deepest depression that she's ever been in in her entire life. And kind of no matter what I try to do, like she cannot be helped through it. Um, literally like 
her idolatry of like her family that was crushed, and then her idolatry of this guy, which was completely crushed, has like left her, I would say, like below hopeless. And it's like almost to the point where she still rejects God though because of it. And so what I'm wondering is like I see like yes, these things can be idols, but even when removed, like how does God I don't know, maybe that's like for the end of the series, but like how does God like come in and heal that in a like a Christian or a non-Christian like when you identify these idols um, and they're forced to be like given up. I can't speak to all people. I can tell you that the other day as I was reading these materials and I was reflecting on my own life, it may have been the first time that I would actually say that I felt like God had shown mercy to me in my life by breaking the idle relationship that I was in. That happened 16 years ago. I still have the effects of it that have scarred me. One of the things that makes Lena and I such a great pair together is we both, in our past, had these kinds of relationships and we instantly understood one another in a way. But that's not what I'm trying to say is have idols and you'll find another person with an idol and make great marriage mates. That's not what I'm saying. <laughs> but what I'm saying is it's common to both of our experience. And the reason I say it was a mercy is because I don't know where my life would have gone. I do know one thing. I would not be here. And I would not be where I was with God. It took a not hurtful, I would say a devastating breaking of the idols in my life to return me back to where I was with the Lord. I'm not saying he's doing that in your friend's life. I'm just saying that in times you never really know what God did, if he did that at all. Right. I find this last one interesting in light of the scriptures that I've heard about Paul and celibacy and not getting married and the value of singleness. I wonder how that fits in with this last one on the list. About swearing it off? You think like Paul had some issues there? Or <laughs> trying to diagnose him 2,000 years ago? Yeah, so I wonder like if necessarily like there is some value within Christianity and swearing off all relationships or if it's always pathological. I don't think it's always pathological. I don't think any of these things are always anything. Let me be clear. I'm not trying to diagnose people with like a list. I'm saying we need to ask these questions of our own heart and I still think today that one of the sins that the church commits against single people is by perpetuating this idea that you cannot find fulfillment in your life unless you are married, right? And I think that is not only hurtful, but it's wrong. I mean, it's like you're, you're beaming at people the fact that their life cannot be fulfilled unless they're married, that there's something wrong with them, and yet I don't see that in Scripture at all. I see that people who give their life wholly towards God are actually rewarded and blessed and even encouraged to do that because even though Paul might have thought the time was shorter than it really was, I mean, Paul might have thought Jesus' return is a lot more imminent, the point remains the same. This life is short. This life is but a drop in the ocean of time that we'll spend with the Lord. None of us really believe that. None of us live our life that way. We put all of our life into this drop, and we want all of our fulfillment to come in this drop. And I'm not saying that that can't happen. God created this for a reason. It's not like he didn't create this for a reason. But if somebody were to say, I'm going to wholly dedicate myself to the Lord, and that means that I'm going to refrain from relationships that could detract me from what I'm called to do, I don't see that there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> Last week, I gave you this image to help you at the very end. Oftentimes, your trouble with an idol really is talking about things that are way below the surface. So last week we said maybe your trouble with money is really more about greed, power, envy, security, control, whatever it is that's really troubling you. I'm going to say the same thing about love. Oftentimes the trouble that we have in the wrong view of relationships or the fact that we put them to be our hope is really because of things that are much deeper that are not on the surface, that we have to ask ourselves about. Is it about intimacy, security, fulfillment, satisfaction, meaning, approval? Are those the things that I'm finding my salvation in? Shouldn't it be in you, O Lord, alone is my salvation? One more slide and I'm done. One example that Tim Keller gives in his book, Counterfeit Gods, he talks about the story of Jacob, Lee, and Rachel. You know that Jacob loved Rachel. 
He worked seven years with his uncle Laban to get her. And he was tricked to take the older daughter, Leah, who we're told was not as attractive. But whatever the reason, he was not in love with her. He was in love with Rachel. And they tricked him and gave him Leah. And he was so upset, he decided to work another seven years just so he could have the one he really wanted. And that left Leah as the unloved wife, the unloved one who was constantly craving his attention, constantly craving his love. And his love was focused on Rachel. We know that part of the story. We could say, look, he idolized Rachel. He even did not take this wife. Some of you might defend it and say, but they tricked him. The whole thing is kind of goofy. I'm not going to focus on Jacob. Let's focus on Leah for a moment. This is what it says about Leah. She was trying to find a way to get Jacob to love her. Look at the way she did it. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, It is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. Nope. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Should know all the time, by the way, here that Rachel, her womb, is not producing any sons. She's thinking, this is why God is doing this. So finally my husband will love me. Again, she conceived a third time, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Now at last my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. So he was named Levi. Nope. Finally, it says, she conceived again. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, This time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. Tim Keller points out that at the end, it's almost like she gets it. Instead of trying to have one son after another after another in an effort to win the love of Jacob, she finally just says, you know what? I'm just going to praise the Lord. I'm going to name him Judah. And that was the end. Pop quiz for your Bible trivia board game people. Which of the four sons is the lineal ancestor of Jesus Christ? Judah. Judah. It was the fourth son that she finally realized that my hope should not be in getting my husband to love me. I'm not defending Jacob. I'm not defending his action. I'm not defending his own idolatry of Rachel. But notice that she had the same exact thing going on, a desire to find fulfillment and love in her husband. And finally, she praised the Lord. I don't think it's an accident that that is the ancestral father of Jesus. Do you have problems with love and romance and relationships? We can talk about it more afterwards. Let's pray. Lord, help us in this room to discover love for you that is not diminished by our love for one another. You yourself give us the great commandment to love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength and love one another. You, yourself, you yourself created us, Lord, for us to be in relationship with one another, even in the intimate relationship of marriage. Help us to figure out that tension correctly. Help us to live into your created ideal. It is tainted. We are sinful. But you have revealed yourself and you have given us your spirit. And through those things, it is possible for us every day to grow closer in doing that with you. But it is only through your power that we can. So, Lord, rain your power down on us and your glory, Lord. Give it to us. Let us see a glimpse of it. Change us to be more in love with you and with one another in the correct way. Pray this in your name. Amen.